iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and for this month, June of 2021, is all dedicated to the physical environment of animals. I am really delighted to welcome John Coe, who is the director of John Coe Design. Welcome, John. Hello, Sabrina. Thank you for having me and hello to your listeners. Yes, wonderful. We just finished a, a, a very nice webinar organized through EASA Animal Welfare with support of IFA. So really delighted to connect with you again and hear a lot more about you know, what you've been doing for almost six decades. So of course, a lot of people already know you through our zoo and aquarium community, as well as other animal holding facilities. But please, um, you know, share some short introduction about yourself. Okay. Well, as you say, I've been doing this quite a long time. I've um, been doing, first of all, research uh, and then professional experience designing zoos for, you know, 50 some, 56 years, I think. And I've had the good fortune uh, to work on over 160 planning and design projects with 82 zoos, aquariums, botanic gardens, but also theme parks, wildlife sanctuaries, even national parks in 13 different countries on six continents. So I've had the good fortune to get around and, and to do international work. And I'm very keen to kind of share ideas, particularly with the international community. Um, I've done everything from, you know, graphics, you know, writing tech, educational text. I went through a period where I was mostly about the educational side of, of zoo design. Uh, I'm a landscape architect, so even before that, I was really involved in, in setting up zoo horticulture as an international profession for zoos. And then... Um, you know, working more and more towards the animal welfare side, which has really been my focus probably for the last 20 years or, or 25 years. Wonderful. And, you know, of course, we'll make sure you have, you know, many, many reads on your different papers, uh, conference papers, you know, written papers. And of course, we'll make sure there is a link to your website. And of course, people can also find your research gate. So we'll make that available with this podcast. And perhaps you can dive a little deeper into your studies as a landscape architect, but also how did you come, you know, connected to the animal world, the zoos and aquariums? Well, I got my undergraduate degree in landscape architecture at the University of California, Berkeley. And then I went to the Harvard Graduate School of Design for uh, my master's degree. In those days, there was no PhD offered in landscape architecture. And so I did have a thesis to write, a master's thesis, and I wasn't sure what I was going to study. I'm interested in everything. So, you know, what do, what do I pick? Um, 
and I was with some other students at the old Boston Zoo, and we went there for an art class, actually. I do a lot of drawing. It's an important part of my work. And we went there to draw the animals. And as we went by the elephant house, I heard this terrible commotion and went in to see what was going on. And they had three elephants, and they were chained, and they were fighting. And they were just trying to tear at each other, but the chains constrained them. And there was just this calamitous noise and this terrible smell, kind of barnyard and vinegar smell that you get from elephants that are excited. And I saw the keeper just standing against the wall with his arms crossed, looking pretty helpless. And so sort of being a naive student, I went up to him and say, why are they fighting? And he said, because they're chained. I said, well, why are they chained? He said, because they fight. And I knew before I left that room or as I left that room, what my thesis would be. And, and I picked the idea of doing a thesis on, on design based on animal behavior. And I, you know, I said to myself, there's gotta be a better way to do this. So I went back to my studies and I talked to my advisor, my, my faculty advisor, and he said two things that were absolutely true. He said, number one, why, why would you want to design zoos for a living? Nobody can make a living doing that. And number two, there's nobody here in our department can help you. And so I kind of was discouraged, but I thought, well, you know, this is Harvard University. This just isn't one department. And in my reading, I'd come across the name of Irvin DeVore, who was a distinguished professor of psychology who'd done a lot of work with baboons, real groundbreaking work. So I just kind of went into the psych department and knocked on his door and he said, sure, I'll help you. And he gave me reading lists and I had already done a lot of reading. And he came to my uh, dissertation and supported it very strongly. So that's how I got started. But because you couldn't make a living doing zoos in the 1967, 68. Uh, it was actually seven years before I got my first zoo project. I had nothing to show. Everybody said, well, here's what we're doing, but what have you got to show? And until I could get my foot in the door, there was really, there were no openings. Wonderful. And I think it's such an, you know, important that you also highlight, you know, maybe, you know, you were obviously at a, at a top um, school, but also, you know, maybe here we don't have the people who have who can help me, but maybe where are these people that could help me, right? And that is so true for all the work that we're doing. Uh, also today, 60 years later, is like, okay, so we need certain expertise. Who has that? And maybe it's not in our facility and maybe it's not even in our country. And you already mentioned, you know, you've worked all around the world. And so could you talk to us a little bit about how, you know, you started in, in design in general and, uh, and then how did you get into the zoos working and maybe some of your first projects? Well, to begin with, um, I, studying at Harvard, it was such an elite school, but it also had such an elite attitude in those days. You know, it was all about we're the students of the masters and we'll become masters and then everybody will do what we want. And, you know, I've never, I've always been community oriented and I never believed that. It just rankled me and it still does, you know, that I know better than other people and I should be able to tell them what to do. 
So I was so sick of that elitist approach that my wife and I joined the, uh, the American Peace Corps. And we went as Peace Corps volunteers for two years and worked with people in the favelas in, in uh, the colonial capital of Brazil in, in, um, in Salvador de Bahia. And, you know, worked with people that really at the very bottom level, economic immigrants who were, you know, as marginal as you can get and helping them achieve their future and helping them, you know, build a school and create a, a, a safe environment for themselves. And then we traveled all around South America for seven months, kind of hitchhiked to seven different countries. And so during that time, you know, I gained a great deal of experience in working with people, not so much with animals. And I visited a lot of really terrible zoos uh, in the day. Then I went to Canada. We moved to Canada and I designed national parks and I worked in the Arctic uh, on environmental studies and did a real wide ranging things that did community housing. I did home for the elderly and home for severely retarded people. So you see the beginnings of animal welfare interests, you know, what elderly people need, what disabled people need, what disabled animals need, you know, <laughs> it's all pretty much the same. And so I've always had this broad interest in landscape and culture and people and in helping people and, and in learning from people. Um, after that, when I was at Harvard, Grant Jones was a classmate of mine, a brilliant, brilliant fellow. And after these seven years, he had opened an office in Philadelphia, I mean, in, in Seattle called Jones and Jones and did wonderful landscape planning work, very sensitive, ecologically based planning and way ahead of its time. And so I went to work with Grant and, and his wife, then Ilsa and their firm. And within the first month, we got a zoo project. And it was doing a master plan for North uh, Northwest Trek in the hills, uh, the foothills uh, of Mount Rainier. And it was, it's a big wild animal park for native animals. Uh, we designed it all in the field, you know, walking the trails, riding the trails, putting stakes in the ground. We designed the whole thing using stakes and strings and things and walking it so that it's a wonderful visitor experience as well as, a, you know, a beautiful free ranging wildlife park. That got us the opportunity to the master plan for Woodland Park Zoo, which is a really long story. But David Hancock's a very noted, uh, respected uh, zoo, zoo writer, zoo expert, zoo director, and architect, uh, joined us on that. And he was our client. And together, Grant Jones and Dennis Paulson and David Hancock and I reinvented basically reinvented the zoo, reinvented the zoo planning process by going back to nature. David taught us that nature is the model. How can we recreate nature? How can we recreate the feeling of nature to the zoo visitor and the opportunities of nature to the zoo animals? And I immediately wanted to start looking at other zoos. And David said, no, 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 you'll not learn anything from any of them. They're all stuck in the last century. Don't even bother. Let's, let's rethink this thing from the beginning. And so together we invented this thing called landscape immersion design, which basically makes 
create an environment as close to nature as you can for the gorillas. Uh, let the gorillas climb the trees, get them out of their cages, get them off the concrete, get them back to nature. And then let's design it so the visitor feels like they're walking through the forest. And then only after they're immersed in the forest will they see the gorilla. And so the idea is that landscape and animals are inseparable. And if you want to conserve uh, the animals, you got to conserve the landscape and try to embed those two images in people's mind in such a way that I've actually heard guests say this in front of the grill exhibit. I heard two women talking and they said one to the other, how do I know the gorilla can't just come around the corner and tap me on the shoulder? You know, and that's, that's immersion. You can't see the barriers, you can't see the buildings, you can't see anything but landscape and gorillas. And Woodland Park really bought that idea. And that was really the beginning of the whole of the whole landscape immersion uh, movement. And there's been a lot of written on it, but the process we used, you can still get copies of the master plan, which are actually, uh, you know, this is how you design a zoo this way. I mean, it's the step-by-step -step is all laid out in the master plan. And if you're a student, wanna learn how it's done, you can still get a copy of that from the Seattle Department of Parks and Recreation. Wonderful. Yeah, we could just have a whole podcast on that whole process um, back in the 70s. That's really interesting. You also mentioned to me the um, CLR design, Philadelphia, mm -hmm. the in emphasis mm -hmm. on innovation. Could you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that? Sure. Well, I worked with Jones and Jones in Seattle um, for for about 10 years, uh, 1973 to 1983. And I loved it there and I still love them. They're wonderful people and they do wonderful, wonderful work. And they've gone on to do other zoo work after I've left. But I had the opportunity to go back and teach landscape architecture in the master's program at the University of Pennsylvania with the late Ian McCarg, who is you know, a world icon in, in sustainable design and environmental planning. And I only wanted to teach for four years, but I moved back there to do that. And as soon as that happened, I started getting invitations from East Coast zoos, like the Bronx Zoo, Staten Island Zoo, Philadelphia Zoo saying, oh, you're on this side of the country now. Why don't you come talk to us? And the work just started coming in. And so I got together with my colleague, Gary Lee, and some of his friends, and we formed a a firm that eventually became known as CLR, which is Coley and, Ro and Rogers, and I'm the C in the, in the CLR. And I stayed with that firm uh, for over 20 years into 2004. And although we continued to develop the, the immersion ideas when, when that seemed appropriate, I was really, I've always been interested in innovation. I've always been interested in moving forward, not just duplicating what we'd done in the past, no matter how good they were. And so I set up a policy, kind of an informal policy for the office that every project we did would develop some major innovation, but the client got to pick the subject. You know, I, I couldn't just chase my own horse and say, this is what we're gonna do here. You know. We'd work with a client. I was trying to talk the client into some real 
innovative idea about primates. Now they weren't so interested. They just wanted somebody to design the best possible mechanism for opening and closing uh, animal gates in holding areas. And so we did. And and it's uh, we didn't copyright anything. I never believe in copywriting. I always believe in sharing ideas. The fabricator uh, who built it for us and, and worked it all out for us uh, now sells it around the world. So, you know, the subject is up to the client, but I'm still very keen about, about innovation. Um, some of the things we worked on there is some something called activity-based design. This was at the time when they were just beginning the first real breakthroughs were occurring in animal training and, and, and environmental enrichment. You know, I watched Gail Lolly work with two rogue elephants at San Diego Wild Animal Park. And these were killer elephants that were separated and had no contact. And they just, they were just there for like eight years by themselves in these big empty yards. And Gail, you know, using nothing more than sliced apples in, in two six-week periods had this killer elephant agreeably standing at the gate and having blood drawn from his ear, all through protected contact. Um, and so, um, she and she and, and and the elephant experts there uh, invented protected contact, exactly, essentially, or they took it from dolphins and invented it for land animals. And so we said, well, if you can get animals to voluntarily contribute to their own medical care, to accept injections and blood draws and do all these other things. Um, <clears throat> then you can, you can use that technique to reduce the coercion. And so later I wrote a paper about the UNZOO where I talked about all the, all the zoos in the world are based on captivity and coercion. But if you can use all this kindness-based training instead of coercion, and we can extend our concept of captivity to have multi-species areas and rotations and large zones, then we can reinvent the zoo. And so activity-based design is, is really that. It's, it's using training and enrichment to help the animal and the visitor and the zoo's bottom line and the community. So a lot of zoos are really kind of divided. You know, there are oh, zoos about people. No, no, zoos about animal. And we said, no, no, it's got to be both. They have to all win. And activity-based design is a way of kind of taking the opportunities prepared by uh, kindness training and, and by environmental enrichment and other animal activities and taking them throughout the zoo for everyone's benefit. Wonderful. Yes, I would love to hear more about that also um, after, you know, my next question, which uh, is more about, you know, the, the work that you have done and described around immersion and storyline and message driven design. But, you know, first, I think it would be really great also to hear a little bit more about, you know, what your company does, like what sorts of, um, you know, types of 
buildings or even part buildings modifications because one thing is of course having the the money to invest in new but perhaps you can also talk a little bit about how existing back a house or front a house or other areas have been amended so perhaps you could talk a little bit about what are some of the things that your company has done in that sphere okay uh, part of it is switch company because you know now i have my own firm um, yes, sorry, yeah. your own firm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're welcome to talk about any of them. Yeah. So, absolutely. That, I, and I'll kind of run them together, but I, I do want to make sure I give proper credit to each one because, you know, I was, I, I'm proud of the role I played, but other people played very important roles as well. Uh, and I'll make sure they have credit for that as well, particularly Gary Lee and uh, John Rogers at CLR. Um, Every, the two the two big firms I worked with, and, and they're not big at all, but Jones and Jones and CLR, both were around 20, 25 professional staff. And they were about equal numbers of architects and landscape architects, and, and in some cases, some graphic designers. And so we didn't make any distinctions over who designs a building and who designs the landscape. We all just did it together. And so as a result of that, I've, you know, I've helped put design really major buildings as well as the exhibits within them and the back house and the kitchens and everything else. And as I mentioned, I've also written the graphics, I've drawn the graphics and written a copy for interpretive materials and even, even plays and, and narratives and things like that. So I've done just about everything you can from a design point of view, but I want to emphasize that I'm not, um, is that I work with people, not with animals. I work for animals with people. So I think the best way to say it. Um, a lot of the work we did was in renovation. You know, we take an old building and convert it. Uh, the old uh, the old menagerie building at, at uh, Toledo Zoo, which had just rows of lions and tigers, we converted to a restaurant, for example. So, <coughs> excuse me. So now you can sit in what used to be the tiger's cage, you know, and, and have dinner. Cleaned up, I must say, and, and sanitized. Um, but I've also worked a lot, um, mostly pro bono, but with smaller zoos and, and smaller groups uh, on particular enrichment projects. So, for example, I uh, recent, well, three years ago now, worked with the Melbourne Zoo on on their predator area and I wasn't the designer. I wasn't, my role was to embed enrichment in everything they did in that project. And I was hired because they said that in the past they'd always had enrichment items, but they always got cut when the budget got cut, you know, thing, every, every stage you have to do a new cost estimate and, you know, and you have to drop some things off your wish list. So could I devise a system of running the project, not the design, but the process, the design process, that would ensure that they didn't lose the enrichment items? And so we went through the design together and we came up with all kinds of interesting enrichment ideas and we settled on, I think, 
four or five uh, thing. One is an overhead uh, zip line that, that takes food across the moat to the tiger and the tiger got to leap up and grab the meat as it comes past. Another is an ice ball feeder where little balls of ice with, with uh, scented or, or flavored roll down into the, into the snow leopard exhibit and then they have to go find them and, and, and chase them down. Um, one is a wobble log where the animals get on it, it shakes and shimmies. So, you know, a number of these sort of, sort of things. <clears throat> But I remembered a process I'd learned about as part of a, uh, um, a conflict management tool uh, called partnering. And, and, and so all the critical people have to sit around table and involve a charter. What, what are the rights of all the players in this game? And so we all sat down and said, okay, in this exhibit we're building, what are your rights if you're the animal? What are your rights if you're the caregiver? What are your rights if you're the visitor? What are your rights if you're a plant growing in that landscape? What are your rights if you're a bird that's just flying over and lives in the area? And so we made long lists of all of these rights and then we collated them and we found that there were five rights that everybody shared. And I'm not sure I can remember all of them right now, but one was they all had the right to be respected. None of them were, you know, throwaway items. Another is they had the right to critical resources, whatever critical resources they need. If you're a plant or a bird or, or a visitor, you had that right to have that. And so anyway, we came up with these five. And then every time we went through the budget and we had to take things out, we ran it through the test. And if it, it's no matter what got kept, Everything got kept had to meet those five criteria. And so at the end of the day, they built the project and all five enrichment things are there today and, and uh, everybody's pretty happy with the process. So sometimes I design processes more than objects, uh, although objects come from those processes. Yes, that's just wonderful. It's so interesting and so important again to kind of highlight, you know, this part of taking what other people, other organizations or other, you know, fields are using to solve certain problems or to, you know, establish certain criteria and how may we use that uh, to help us think through, you know, if we have to make decisions, you know, this is how we could come to it by having gone through a certain process that has delivered us these five criteria. And I think what I, what also really resonates for me is that every everyone everybody has this uh, as you mentioned we don't know all the five but that doesn't really matter but you know one of them is respect and nobody is a throwaway and um, you know you mentioned you work with people for animals and you also work with people for plants and can you even though you know we're talking mainly about animals i think plants are so important trees you know the, gr the greens of the planet uh, or other colors of course but um, can you talk a little bit more to, to plants? Sure. Um, in a way, that's my first love. My father was a horticulture professor and a landscape gardener. And all through high school and, and, and summers and, and weekends through uh, university, I, I worked with my dad building landscapes and, and running a nursery and so forth. So 
I kind of come from that side of things. Animals really came quite a bit later. Um, but again, it's not, to me, it's the whole package. You know, it's, it's, you could look at it broadly at the ecosystem, but everything has a role to play and everything has a reason to be there and, and a need for it. And so what I've grown to more is, is being the advocate for, for the assembly, for the community, being the community advocate for the community of living things. Um, on my website, you'll see that my, my present John Co-Design website, I say John Co-Design, uh, our goal is to collaborate in the creation of enriching, enriching and sustainable places for people, plants, and animals. You know, don't leave any of them out. And, and because I work with a lot of partisan people at zoos, you know, some of them are really so focused on, on the animal welfare. And I say, that's good. Yeah, but what about the human welfare? What about, like you, Sabrina, you've been working a lot on the welfare of the caregivers. You know, that's so important. But what about the welfare of the board of directors? You know, what about the welfare of the bottom line? You know, what about the welfare of the community who either keeps you going or closes you down? You know, and so building all these bridges and, and these networks is, is, I think that's one of the areas that, that I work on the most is try to people say, try to get people not to accept it's got to be this or it's got to be that. If, if I hear a debate or I'm asked into a debate and it has to be this, no, no, it has to be that, I say find a third path. You know, you're never going to win fighting over these fixed locations. Find a third path where if everybody doesn't win, at least nobody seriously loses. And so that's kind of, I think, almost my motto is, you know, find a third path. Yes, that's beautiful. Find a third path. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, with regards to, you know, your first love and actually this connection and I, you know, you've been very kind and helpful for us here with our garden, for example, you know, this idea of what grows in what, you know, environments and what is good for everybody. So not just are we using plants or trees and so on just to make it look good or are we also looking at, you know, the aspects of this, in this geographical area, not only will these plants likely thrive better, but we're also using less water consumption and other aspects, you know, to kind of this well-being for all. So this extension to planetary health, if you like. And I know you're very passionate about that as well. So, yeah, we have so many things that, that you and I talk about, and, and those are so important to really look at, at well-being for everybody. And, you know, a lot of that also when you're thinking about what source of plants or which animals can we, you know, care for well, as well as being in line with our educational message and conservation message. You talk a lot about, you know, what is the message? Um, you know, this relationship, not only to immersion, but sort of storylines and message uh, driven design. So can you talk to us a little bit about your approaches to what is the message? Yes. Thanks for that lead in Sabrina. That's a, uh... I spent a lot of time on that, and to me, it's really, really important. It, it's, 
it's important for people to understand that everything they do from the way they comb their hair <laughs> to the way they, their body language or anything else they do gives a message. You know, the world is full of messages and we're keen, high, highly strung to pick up certain messages in, that we're not even aware of. And so often, particularly when you're doing a master plan or the beginning of, a, of an exhibit project, we'll ask the zoo, okay, you're looking at a major new primate center and this is probably gonna be in the order of $15 million that you're talking about investing here. Now, what's the message? Now you could take that amount of money and you could buy television time or you could put up billboards. You could, many things you could do with that money to communicate your message. That's worth that much money to you. So you chose to use an exhibit uh, and, and breeding facility to communicate that message. So what's your message? In other words, message isn't something you think about later. Message isn't something you say, gee, I didn't think of that <laughs> later on. You've got to be very, very clear about it. And so I see so much confusion about people's intention and the message they're actually delivering. So, you know, just for an example, um, in the early days when I wrote this paper, what's the message and, and some of the early papers, uh, you might go to an old zoo and you might see, uh, you know, a gorilla behind a, an old rusty cage or cage has been painted 18 times. Uh, and there's a graphic saying, you know, how important this animal is to conservation and is rare and endangered and everything else. But when you look at it, what you see is a felon in prison or maybe, you know, some kind of metal deviant monster you know, that's got to be locked up. So what you're, what you're seeing emotionally totally overrides what you're reading. And the message is, I want to get out of here. You know, it's nothing about the nobility of gorillas or their, their status in, in nature. And so what I've learned is that people respond first with emotion if the emotional connection is there, then they'll bother to read or to listen or to pay attention to get the cognitive, the data, to get the information. But if, if it turns them off or gives them the wrong idea to begin with, then, that, then it's game over. And I've, I've seen so many zoos try to take this idea of immersion and use it for something like elephants. And you know, what you're actually seeing is a big paddock of, of packed earth, you know, and no green anywhere. And you're trying to say this is a forest animal, you know, if you can't, <clears throat> if you can't deliver the message, then don't try do something else, take a different message. For example, this is how we treat his, how we give the elephants the best quality of life we possibly can, rather than saying this is a forest with elephants in it when there's no forest. You can't create a forest because they just took it down. So I just constantly look at exhibits that the people have done and um, 
actually tomorrow I'm, I'm on a jury judging exhibit awards for uh, the zoo, Australian Zoo and Aquarium Association. And that's one of the things, what's the message? You know, okay, you've built this thing, you're really proud of it. What does it tell me? You know, when I, when I see it. <clears throat> and so I want people to be so clear about that as they go, at, they create a vision for what they want to do, and then as they implement it. And I want to say that that message is not just for the visitor. You know, if I'm designing a back of house, I'm, I'm thinking about what's, what will it feel like to work here? You know, will I look forward to working here? Is this, this work environment respect me as a person and as a worker? Does it meet my needs? You know, and, and if I'm going back there and moving gates around to let animals going through, and if I skin my knuckle on that gate, what's the message of that? You know, that somebody didn't round the gate enough that it, you know, was safe to use. What kind of a message is that? And then what's the message to the animal? When the animal moves into this area, does it, is the message that you're welcome? I'm welcome here. This looks promising. This looks safe. This looks comfortable. What message are you giving to those animals? And then obviously, you know, what message are you giving to, to the guests, the visitors who come through? So I just, I wish I could, you know, kind of pin that, tattoo that across my forehead or something. And whenever I meet with, with people uh, on a business, you know, a zoo or aquarium or and this applies to sanctuaries. You know, it applies to lab animal areas too. And again, it just comes kind of back to respect, I think, basically. Yes, absolutely. It's, uh, as you said, you know, I wish I could tattoo it, you know. Um, like, especially, you know, you and I are recording this um, in, in June 2021. Uh, still, you know, the pandemic and COVID and of course, you know, we're not having this conversation in person, we're having it at, online. And through Zoom, you know, a lot of people just have started lifting these little signs like, you're, you know, you want to say it over and over again, or you have to say it over and over again, like you're, you're muted or and you would want to raise the sign every time, right? Saying like, <laughs> what's your message? What's your message? Like, you know, making sure that that becomes, you know, so part of thinking of it. And, and this resonates so much with me because in 2014, um, Dr. Jess Harfell from the University in Olbor and myself, we wrote a paper called Eating Animals at the Zoo, uh, which is all about, you know, the well-being. We, we, of course, want to make sure that the animals in the zoo have good well-being. But then, you know, when you go to the restaurants or the hot dog stands, um, you eat, you know, animals, products of animals that uh, whose, you know, welfare is not necessarily very well considered at all. Or, um, so what's your message here, right? We're caring for certain animals and we're caring, not caring for others, which of course, you know, um, Dr. Hal Herzog has written a lot about in his, in his book. And I think it's also going to be republished this year, you know, um, the ones we love and the ones we hate and the ones we eat, right? Uh, and then, but what we also talked about was, you know, how you could have um, shrimp, you know, um, sea dragons and other, you know, beautiful animals in the aquarium and having your message there that shrimp fisheries are devastating these endangered species. And then you would go to the restaurants and you would 
you could order shrimp as a meal, right? And it might not actually be the same shrimp that is decimating these sea dragons. But again, you know, to like you talk about, you know, this this continuum, right? And these building bridges is like also how do we have that continuum of our message of caring for, you know, people, planet, other animals, all throughout all the things that we do within in our facilities so um, yeah what's your what's your message is certainly something that absolutely resonates uh, with me a lot and uh, that's, you know, that's a really good example sabrina thanks for bringing that in that's that's exactly what we're talking about yes yes thank you yeah so um and of course you know your work you have done a lot of different work in different places and you have also gotten awards for your work so perhaps you could share a little bit uh, you know the different projects where you got awards and perhaps for what uh, these awards were okay well with with jones and jones and clr together um we won 13 American Zoo and Aquarium Exhibit Awards uh, in, in the USA. Um, in the early days, it was, you know, there wasn't very clear criterion, criteria for what was awarded. You know, it, gee, that looks good. Let's give that the award. But <clears throat> they were primarily based around this idea of, of introducing um, the immersion idea, you know, first of all, but then later on when we started uh, opening up some of the ideas like the animal trails and things like that, it, basically they were really novel ideas that, that people had never done before and then they were done really well. And so I think, it, you know, that was those, those kinds of projects. Um, at first, as I say, the, 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 um, Immersion Awards, we actually didn't win one for the Seattle work because uh, David Hancox was so anti-zoo, he wouldn't submit it. <laughs> but later we did immersion work at Pittsburgh, uh, which won awards, and Atlanta, which won awards, and, 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 and many other zoos that won awards that way. Um, I think part of one thing I'd like to mention here, it's not exactly online with your question, but uh, is how do you market your services? And when we'd go to conferences, typically because you're a commercial member, you're, you pay a lot of money that you can have a booth, right, in, in the products room. And so you can be there with a lot of other really good people, you know, selling all kinds of services and products. And I have great respect for all of those people, but I never wanted to be there because that's the wrong message. You know, when you're, when you're doing that, your message is I'm a commercial supplier of something. And I never felt that way. I always felt like I'm a generator of ideas that I share. And I've never tried to patent anything or get any monetary value from it <coughs> other than to say, here's this idea. Do you like it? Try it. You know, if it works, spread the word, <laughs> you know. And so I always tried to market myself by giving papers, you know, conference papers. And, and that, that weren't 
advertisements directly, they were sharing ideas. But people started seeing you as someone who has ideas to share. And, you know, and that eventually brings work. And so all the way through, I've always tried to maintain that idea that um, if, if you want to take this idea and run with it, great. And if you can improve it, that's even better. And I'm not worried about you stealing it because if you steal it, that's fine because I'm already on to the next idea. You know, I'm already two or three or 10 years ahead of the idea you want to steal. So go for it. <laughs> no problem. Um, and, and so I think to me, the, the awards are, you know, judging awards is, a, I try to do a good job, but it's a bit arbitrary. Uh, and so I, I try to take that as, yeah, that's really good. But <clears throat> what's important is the idea behind it, whether it was accepted widely or not. And so you keep um, putting those ideas out there. Sometimes I find fertile ground, sometimes they don't. When they do, they usually get an award. Excellent. Great. Thanks so much for sharing that. And it's also, you know, um, we might have a personal preference for a certain award or another or not, you know, or actually come up maybe with our own awards, right? For you to think and come up with those five criteria that you mentioned earlier, you know, maybe some of the awards would be, you know, even better if they would actually have very particular criteria that are actually revolving around all stakeholders, including animals. So, yeah, so awards are, like you say, not necessarily the most important thing, but of course, sometimes awards can also help us move things uh, forward or bring it into the spotlight exactly. of people who are not paying attention. So, and um, great. So, yeah. and, and again, In the different... The different times, like uh, on, on the awards, you know, I'm on the awards committee now tomorrow for, for the Australian, uh, Australian, New Zealand, Australasia awards. Um, and years ago when I helped do, I did this some years ago and I said, well, you have to have a criteria, criterion called innovation. And so now they have one but they define it as like an advanced in technology or something. And I'm, I'm going to work on them a bit because, you know, that, that can be an innovation, of course, but I'm looking at innovation in terms of new ways of solving problems, you know, entirely new approaches to giving animals more choice and control or giving visitors a better experience or, you know, what, or, or finding a better way to organize people, to achieve a certain goal. You know, to me, those are the innovations that really count, not, not just the technical advances. So defining innovation really broadly, I think is very important. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. That is so, um, you know, like you, you write about, you know, one thing is obviously evidence-based design using research technology as much as we already know, but also this sort of, you know, creativity and innovation and then taking that leap uh, of faith in a way to like now let's just try this and see what happens right to kind of that has to come before before sometimes we even know how that's going to um, you know pan out so uh, yeah I really like that so innovation in the broadest uh, sense and of course you have been really innovative in in many ways and perhaps you can 
you know, highlight some of your zoo projects, you know, the animal rotation or the overhead trails. Maybe you can share some of those with us. Sure. I'm very happy to. <clears throat> Uh, the landscape immersion, getting the emotional experience of sharing a forest with with the animal, was was a big breakthrough. Uh, but it's <clears throat> it doesn't always work. You don't always have the opportunity, and also it was really kind of based on an American or North American conservationist, you know, Henry Thoreau, Ralph. Waldo Emerson, John Muir approach to nature, you know, where you already respect nature before you enter the exhibit. But I don't think it would work in cultures that have no background in respecting nature, where all they want to do is go through in groups of 40 and, and take a picture and leave. Uh, and I don't mean to disrespect them. I'm saying it's the wrong message for them. They wouldn't get it. And so, you know, we're always looking at different ways to, to, to benefit all the stakeholders. And in, in studying wildlife, and I, I did want to mention that I was very fortunate through sponsors like Terry Maple at Zoo Atlanta and others that I've actually been able to do a fair amount of field work, not, not long-term, but brief visits. So, you know, I've I visited all... Um, the natural habitats of, of all the three major uh, species of gorilla in Africa, for example. You know, I've, I've visited free-ranging orangutans in Sumatra and Komodo monitors in Komodo Island. And, um, you know, I've actually been able to spend time in the forest and really study these areas. <clears throat> and so uh, in thinking about how you recreate nature, you know, it occurred to me that animals control their environment by moving through the world to find places that meet their needs. Uh, so if a mandrel wants to get warm, or lemur wants to get warm, it goes up to a high point where it gets the sun early in the morning and basks. If it wants to get cool, it goes down into the deep shade. If it wants to catch a breeze, it's halfway up the tree. And you've written about this yourself, some of your experience in Costa Rica, how animals use the land, use the landscape to meet their needs. And yet I look at a zoo and it's exactly the opposite. The animal stays in one place its whole life and things are brought to it. You know, rather than living in a landscape and moving through and finding what you need, it's totally opposite. And so I just started asking the question, well, why can't the animal move through the zoo? And to start off with rotation, the first experiment with that was at Toledo Zoo, and they had you know, an old, not terrible by the by the standard of the day, it's terrible today, but by the standard of the day, they had chimps, uh, gorillas and orangutans, and they wanted us to add an out, they had no outdoor exhibit because, you know, Toledo was a pretty cold place in the winter. And so they could never go outdoors. And so they asked us to design an outdoor area for them that was purely an exercise area that was they had no attempt. Well, the grill exhibit was supposed to be a nice exhibit, but the others were just an outdoor exercise area. And so we had this idea, why don't you build a big cube and divide it in four 
and the gorillas in one and the chimps in the other and the ranks in the third one and the other one's empty because you're cleaning it. And then after you clean it, you move the chimps in there and clean theirs and then move the ranks in there and clean theirs and move the gorillas in there. And they just go around the circle. So they spend time in the other the other's place. Pretty basic, you know, idea. Um, and then at Louisville, we, we talked about this islands exhibit and we said, <clears throat> or I suggested, what would it be like in, let's say, Indonesia, uh, where there's a fig tree and the figs are all ripe and all the animals are coming. And the first animal to get there would be the hornbill. And it, it's dropping food, uh, fruit down, and on the ground, the babarusa pig will appear to get the food that fell. And then, <clears throat> let's say the um, hornbill will dis be displaced by a siamang or a gibbon. Say, say a gibbon will come through there and hornbill will leave and the gibbon will eat fruit and 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 then eventually the wrangle will get there and the gibbon will leave and the wrangle will drop fruit and the tapir will come and pick up the fruit and then eventually after all this commotion the tiger will show up and everybody else will leave so can we recreate that in the zoo so we designed this facility that had four uh, had three outdoor areas and one indoor area and they all had a they were all in a line and they all had a stream that kind of flowed through them and then we had a back house area with connections or raceways uh, so that each animal could go to each exhibit um, depending on where the staff wanted them to go and the idea was that it was totally random they would be randomly rotated um, the tiger might be in this area now, but the taper might be there later, or the gibbon might be there, or the baboon, I mean, the orang might be there. All, and each of them was different. So they each had different attractions. Um, <clears throat> you know, so, so you got a lot of variety by moving through them. And uh, some scientists did a three-year study on that. And they, the question was, well, is that stressful? You know, is it stressful for the taper to have the tiger next to it? or the Babarusa pig. And one of the things they observed is that the male tapir came into the enclosure the tiger had just left and scent marked on top of the tiger scent mark saying, oh no, this is my place now. And so, um, you know, after three years of observations by independent scientists, you know, they said, no, this is a good thing. You know, all these animals are benefiting from this. And it could only be done because all of them were clicker trained, all of them were target trained, all of them would gate, all of them would go to the gate and leave the area on command. You know, if they didn't want to do it, the whole thing kind of breaks down. But that's this activity based idea of using, you know, the kindness training. Uh, and there's always a reward for them whenever they move. And so that, oh gosh, that must be 20 years old now or something and has worked very well. And so that was the rotation idea. And then um, Point Defiance uh, Park Zoo and Aquarium has also done quite an elaborate one. But that was very slow to pick up. There really weren't many other zoos doing that. <clears throat> but then I had the idea that instead of these short raceways, these short connections, what if the connections between them were really long and they became actually the exhibit itself? And so I, 
I met with Patty Reagan, who is the founder, it's an amazing woman, a founder of the Center for Great Apes in, in Florida. And she had a series of these big dome um, activity areas for the chimps and orangs that her group had rescued from the entertainment industry. And I said, Patty, those are wonderful, but why don't you connect them? Why don't you build kind of a linear structure, like a long, narrow enclosure that connects them all up and let them move around the park? Because you've got a beautiful park, beautiful Florida forest here, oak trees, palm trees. And so she did. And now the animals all move from one to another. And she's kept expanding that. And now she has <clears throat> uh, over two and a half kilometers of these trails connecting all these different areas that the animals use on a daily basis. And so with that proof and, and her, she and her staff showing that, yeah, it can work, you know, the animals enjoy it. We enjoy it. It's workable. It's safe. Um, I was able to send my colleagues at Philadelphia zoo down there to say, just, you know, go spend two days with her, watch it, you know, convince yourself that it's safe and doable. And Andy Baker, who was then general curator, came back, and he'd also seen smaller versions of, of this in, in Europe. And so he said, let's do it. And we did, a, with CLR, we did a master plan converting the entire zoo to a big trail network where all these animals could take turns going different places. And in doing that, I went back and read some of Hedegar's work, which is Heine Hedegar's, you know, the great you know, like the father of zoobiology. And he talks about how in nature, animals don't, some animals have territories, some animals have home ranges, but they're not an area of space. We tend to say there's a geographic area of so many hectares that, you know, that the lion uses or the, you know, or the, the weaver bird uses. But he said, not really what a home range is, is a network connecting critical resources. The area is almost independent. Often they won't even use the areas not next to their trail. And I said, well, wow, that's just what we're doing. We're building trails at the zoo connecting critical resources. And then if you give the animals, you know, turns to do, to use all them, for example, the pygmy marmosets, you know, which will fit in the palm of your hand, Philadelphia had a, a small troop of them and they would go 500 meters down the other end of the trail and 500 meters home. So here's an animal, you know, <laughs> you know, that you can hold in your palm that just went for a, a kilometer long walk together and spent all morning doing it. And the behavior they've seen, you know, the positive behavior they've seen in those animals they'd never seen before and just really cements the idea that, that the idea works. And recently talking again to the Center of Great Apes, Patty Reagan says she knows at least six sanctuaries now, uh, primate sanctuaries that are using trails that have taken that on and the idea is spreading. And I think there's at least six or seven different zoos around the world that are. The Adelaide Zoo here in Australia just built a beautiful trail system for colobus. Uh, Auckland Zoo has is, is, is introduced a new trail system for their tigers. Jacksonville Zoo has a great trail system for tigers, and now they've opened one for, for a wide variety of, 
of great apes and smaller primates. So it's gradually catching on. But what I want to happen next is let the animals decide where they want to go rather than the staff saying, okay, it's your turn. You can go here, but the others have to go there. Excellent. We'll definitely make sure to have some links to your work, obviously your website, but there's also been, you know, quite some media coverage on, on some of these uh, trail systems and so on, which is a really yeah. nice lead way into, um, you know, choice control and empowering, you know, wildlife in human care. And that could be through technology computers. You've just finished uh, writing a paper uh, together with collaborators on that, but also this whole idea of embedding enrichment into facility designs in your five C's. So perhaps you could uh, talk a little bit uh, to, to these sorts of concepts and approaches, please. Sure. Well, the five C's, you know, there's been a lot of talk, um, you know, about the, the five freedoms, which were, you know, very revolutionary, very important ideas that that came out of uh, out of United Kingdom, uh, and they were really based on uh, production animals, you know, um, cattle, pigs, and so forth. Um, and they were all freedom from, you know, freedom from hunger, freedom from pain, freedom, and so of these different kinds. And I just got to thinking, well, that's that's really good. Let's build on it. Instead of being freedom from, in other words, instead of re reducing the worst things and bringing animals up to some kind of a mid-level survival level or coping level, as, as Sally Sherwin talks about, why don't we turn around and talk about freedom? So the idea of the five C's is the animal's right to, to a choice. The animal's right to have a choice and make a choice. The animal's right to control their environment and, and the things that affect them. So you can choose, and then if you take a choice, you can act on it through control. But also the right to have complexity uh, instead of boredom. You know, let's, let's have challenge, let's have complexity, let's have things change, the right to change. And then Overall, these all add up to the right to competence. And I really want to emphasize competence because that's what these all lead to. In, in the wild, you have, let, let's say we have a Sumatran tiger, okay? And he's doing his thing, you know, in, in northern Sumatra. And I can tell you that that's a competent animal because he's still alive and he's still succeeding. And so that animal has a combination of physical competence, social competence, and intelligence or intellectual competence that allow him to live his life uh, in, in that very, very challenging environment. There's been a lot of talk going back uh, to Ulysses Seal and the, and the founding of what now became SIMS, which is this wonderful global breeding program, date, dating service, you know, which manages the population to minimize genetic inbreeding. And so they talk about animals that have genetic competence. 
you know, that if you breed these two animals together, that'll be, that'll be fine. You won't get too much inbreeding because they're, they're not too inbred. They're genetically competent. But I'm saying that's great. Let's support it by all means. But what good is it to have this genetically competent animal, you know, that maybe it's got bright eyes and beautiful fur, but no muscle tone, no social competence, afraid of his own shadow, um, <clears throat> you know, no curiosity at all, you know, that's no good. So I say that, that behavioral competence is co-equal to genetic competence in long-term survival. And environmental enrichment, once you move it beyond the kind of recreational stage, is the foundation, it's the toolbox for achieving behavioral competence. So by giving animals choice, giving them control, providing them with challenges and complexities and changes, we're building their competence. We're building their muscle tone. We're building their dexterity. Uh, we're building their curiosity. We're building their social skills so that they become competent animals again, instead of helpless welfare recipients. And so to me, that's what the five C's are about, is the, they all, you know, based on the toolbox of enrichment writ large, you know, they can achieve this level of competence that, that we really need if, if we're going to keep these animals, you know, as sound beings and, and with a high state of welfare on into the future. Yes, absolutely. It makes me, you know, there's so much there. You know, I, I keep saying, oh, we could do a whole podcast on this, or we could do a whole podcast on that. But just, you know, even on competence, you know, what what do we mean? You know, the plasticity of behavior, what are the needs? Like you mentioned, social competence, you know, so what are the the needs of the animals in the social sphere, the environmental sphere? Uh, it made me think back also at a paper from... I think it was 2003 or so from Rabin, you know, this importance of behavioral, you know, diversity, what is necessary. So really, you know, when we're thinking about just often also with words like choice or the words of control, just like with the word of competence, what exactly does that mean? You know, you talked already about what is our definitions and uh, how do we, you know, build that resilience, confidence, you know, in competencies. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really important, uh, really important point to pay attention to. And of course, yeah, enrichment and all the other aspects built in or, or rotated can, of course, all contribute to that. And I think what, you know, is certainly a really red thread through this whole podcast is about, you know, continuing to be at the forefront, like you said, you know, you're already on to the next thing, you keep on thinking, you want people to, you know, even take the ideas and run with it, improve on them, you know, and so it really kind of rolls also into the question on, you know, what is the next generation zoo? And, you know, also, who is even asking this question as you write uh, so nicely? So perhaps you can talk a little bit to that. What is the next generation of zoo? And, and I'm sure there are people asking that, but who are these people asking questions or not? <laughs> really good question, Sabrina. I'm actually going to answer it by going back to a previous question. I didn't 
answer, which is the role of uh, computer technology. Um, yeah, I've recently uh, published a paper with Julia Hoy. Uh, you know, introduce it's a paper that attempts to <clears throat> provide background to IT designers, intelligent technology designers, about what zoo animals need. So it's it's written by a zoo person for people who aren't zoo people <laughs> to help them understand what they can do and what the needs are. Uh, <clears throat> but I see this smart technology as ways of empowering the animals. So for example, already we've got situations where um, uh, animals Julia's working with like a, a nail-tailed uh, wallaby has a radio frequency identification microchip embedded. You know, all, all pets have these th to identify them if they're lost. So this wallaby can enter a pen, uh, a feeding pen. When it comes to the gate, the gate will recognize it and only it and will open for it and only it. Uh, a motion sensor will alert the RFID reader that this animal's coming. So the gate will open, the animal can go in, it can get food that no other animal can get, it can get food that the rats can't get. <laughs> now they've adapted that to uh, some small native species that they're reintroducing to the wild. Um, and so that, <clears throat> you know, this, this small animal is used to this box that can go in as a retreat and get food. And then when they release animal, they place the box in, in the wild site as well. So it's a temporary house for the animal where it can get food, it can escape from foxes, uh, and then gradually, you know, they'll taper it off until it's free ranging. So <clears throat> there are all kinds of things that we can simply do so that we give animals choices. And some things I've talked about for 20 years now, um, you know, what about the ambient world you live in? What if it's too cold and you want to warm up? What if it's too hot and you want to cool off? What if you're thirsty or hungry? Why do you have to wait for a caregiver to come and, you know, change the, the temperature? Why can't you move from one place to another? And, and if you're, let's say a chimpanzee and you move to this perch, you know, a motion sensor will tell that this perch is occupied and will turn on a fan. And when the chimp leaves, the fan goes off. Um, <clears throat> I did a, a, a situation uh, to Columbus Zoo many years ago. They had a big herd of elephants stuck in this giant indoor room all winter because it's a very cold winter there. And I said, why don't you give them a shower that they can turn on because they can't have a pool. At least they could stand in a shower. So they built a shower and they had a, <clears throat> the elephants could turn on and off the shower. And the first, they had a counter. They could count how many times it was used. The first night the elephants used it, they used turned the shower on 45 times. Well, you know, there's like six elephants. They're not gonna take 45 baths. So what's going on? So they installed a, a video monitor, uh, a surveillance camera, and what they found was that all night long they're eating dry hay. But if they turn on a shower and put the hay under the shower and get it wet, then it goes down so much nicer. And they even observed 
on the video that the matriarch of the herd would sort of glance at the shower and, and one of the other females would go turn it on for her. So once you do give them power and choice using mechanics like this, this is a very low tech, but it's an example, then they start running their own world and running their own ways and doing things they want to do. So the idea I have about, you know, the relation animal-centered computing is what it's really called, or animal animal friendly computing, animal activated computing, um, is about using really high tech tools to give animals more control over the world around them. Uh, and I think that's leading into your future question. I think that's a big part of the future. I, I can see all kinds of examples of that. Uh, right now, um, Gary Crichton, the you know fam famous elephant manager from Dublin Zoo, who's now out on his own. I want to give him a plug because he's got a great future as a consultant. But he's he told us that you can that he would be flying over the Atlantic on his way to the U.S. and on his smartphone from thirty thousand feet over the Atlantic, he can hook up with the video cameras in the elephant exhibit and see what they're doing. He can raise and lower feeders. He can uh, <clears throat> turn on and off different gadgets for the elephants, you know, off from that distance. And so I'm saying that's great, but he's still doing it for them. So what we need is more things like the elephant shower that they can do for themselves when, as you talk about all the time, 24 seven, when the, everybody's off duty and there's nobody there. How can they manage their own world using you know very simple or or maybe pretty complicated uh intelligent um technology to allow them you know to create to satisfy their own needs without help from us so anyway that's definitely going to the future um i 2012 i was a speaker uh along with many distinguished speakers at the uh, future Zeus conference in buffalo new york and I talked a lot about how zoos are evolving and evolution is a branching. It's, it's not a straight line. You know, it's not from bad to good. <laughs> you know, it's a branching thing. And so what's going to happen is in the past, you know, we had oligarchs had private zoos. In the future, oligarchs will have private zoos. And when I predict the future, it's not the future I want. It's the future I see. And so... I think we're going to have zoos of animatronic animals, you know, not living at all, just masterful robots. Uh, we're probably going to have zoos of chameleon animals uh, where people have used genetic engineering to cross a lemur and a cat or something like that. Uh, so I see a lot of things that I don't want to see, but I think will happen. <clears throat> but I also see this idea of the unzu or of third generation conservation, which is <clears throat> instead of putting, calling this place a national park and calling this place a wilderness and putting a fence around it and keeping some things in and some things out, which is what I call preservation or first generation conservation, you know, that doesn't work when the climate changes and the animals can't go anywhere and they can't come and they can't go. It becomes an island and maybe a, a doomed island. 
And then second generation conservation is restoration. That's good. You know, we restore strip, strip mines, we restore uh, tidelands, we restore mangroves, you know, all, all very good stuff. But I asked some conservation friends of mine, okay, what's next? What's the next major trend? And they kind of looked at me and like, what do you mean? So I gave it some thought and I thought that accommodation, you know, so we have preservation, restoration, and then accommodation. So what, instead of putting fences around things, we just figure out how to get on with the animals around us. Um, <clears throat> You know, there are people in Alaska that live with bears. You know, there are people in India that live with tigers. And they've kind of figured out how to do that. And, and so how can we rearrange our world through urban wildlife and wildlife corridors um, and, and use it profitably as well? For example, in San Francisco, uh, Pier 39 used to be a real cheap tourist uh, trinket place, the sea, California native sea lions moved in and took over the pier and they're protected species so nobody could bother them and and they basically just took over the pier and now they're a huge tourist attraction and everybody comes to see the sea lions and they got fancy restaurants and all kinds of high high quality tourist gears around them just because the sea lions decided we're going to move in here. So the sea lions are happy, the visitors are happy, they're all making money, <laughs> sea lions are fat. So that's accommodation. Uh, thousands and thousands of people, and I've been fortunate to do it, you know, go on whale watching tours. And if it's properly managed, you know, the whales and the dolphins actually come up to interact if they choose. If they don't, they go their separate way. There's no compulsion, you know. That's the UNZU, that's third generation conservation. And, and to me, that's where I'd really like to see us head. Excellent. That's just really wonderful. And it's like you mentioned also, it's like what can animals do for themselves, you know, that we are doing today. And that some of these can be, you know, solved by the use of technology or maybe more expensive or complicated systems, but others also can be solved by, you know, really designing really good environments for animals that are based on, like you talked about going back to nature, when Professor Hannah Buchanan-Smith and I wrote 24-7 across lifespan, we looked at ecology and we looked at, you know, the use of habitat management and the approach of habitat management to really look at how, you know, what are the aspects that are necessary for a species to flourish? Uh, so not just survive, but really thrive. And then, you know, how do we use that concept uh, of habitat management, creating good environments like you talked about, so that animals can choose um, what they want to do, have control over that. And uh, yeah, so those, those, all those things coming uh, together. And of course, you know, you and I have talked uh, and worked quite a long time on back house you know, the, the areas where animals may spend or sometimes don't spend a lot of time depending on the zoo's uh, philosophy or, you know, traditions, but also laws that dictate what you can and cannot do. But perhaps, uh, you know, we're coming almost to the end of this podcast. Perhaps you, you talk a little bit about our back of house work and uh, maybe some of the changes that you've been able to make uh, when, in your work with facilities. Okay. Well, as, as many of our uh, listeners will know, uh, 
it's very common to have in a zoo, less common in a sanctuary or a laboratory animal setting, but an area where the animal lives and then an area where it's moved uh, for service or special needs. And in zoos, that's evolved in many cases that there's a public exhibit area that the animal is in for eight hours a day when the zoo is open. And then it's moved to what we call a night house or back of house, uh, various other names for it, for the 16 hours a day when the zoo is closed. That's a very understandable solution to a human need. In other words, staffing. <laughs> but it's not a very good solution to an animal need, which is, you know, they don't, they're not like a wind-up toy. You unplug 16 hours a day and you plug in eight hours a day. You know, they've got... As you've written so so well, um, you know, twenty four seven, three hundred sixty five for life. For life, you know, they don't unplug. Yeah, they may sleep, but they're not going to sleep sixteen hours. You know, when the zoo is closed, and so these back house areas all evolved to meet human needs, caregiver needs. Uh, cheap, efficient construction, durability, sanitation, um, safety, of course. And now we're starting to think, well, gee, what about the animal? <laughs> you know, what, what do they need? And so <clears throat> one way we've kind of solved this in some back of house areas that I've helped to design is to give the animal's choice to stay in, in a wide variety of different areas. Uh, often there'll be an indoor exhibit that will be pretty nice. And then there'll be smaller uh, pens for isolating animal, you know, for an hour while you clean, or if you have another area for uh, quarantine, but you, you rarely have a quarantine animal there. So why not let the animals have the run of all of those places and be at whichever one they want to, whenever they want to. So, you know, that's one idea that, that we've done it, that I think has helped. Another idea we talked about is the chimpanzee penthouse. You know, the Los Angeles Zoo chimp exhibit, we, it was a renovation of an old exhibit and it was on a steep hillside. And so we built a three-story building for the chimps uh, as their night house. But it, on it was two stories and on top of it, we just built a penthouse, which just is a big outdoor mesh enclosure. <clears throat> and if they wanted to, they could sleep under the stars. And in the early morning before the zoo opens, they can see for miles in every direction, they have beautiful views up into Griffith Park. Uh, there are shade trees over it. And we also knew that when they had this big new exhibit that the social fabric of the chimp troop would change. And sure enough, it, it, as chimps do, it split. You know, they fissured into two separate groups that didn't get along. And so this way, one group could be in, in the penthouse while the other group's on exhibit, then they could rotate. And so it just gave them a lot, you know, a lot more flexibility. Uh, but moving forward, I would rather see a situation, if we could reinvent this, where you provide the best possible uh, animal activated environment to live in. And it's either 
on exhibit when the zoo is open or off exhibit when the zoo's or closed, but it's it's still the same series of places. But it's not just like building a wonderful big exhibit and they live there forever. You know, I still would want to hook it up with trails and other adventures that the animals can have where they can go down a trail and, and feed from the plants beside the trail or see what's happening in other parts of the park. And so I would like to see um, really breaking down this idea about what the animal can do at this hour and what it can't do at that hour and, and just giving, you know, brainstorming ways to give them as many choices as possible. I also wanted to touch on a paper I'm working with for you on uh, design for elderly and disabled uh, primates and, and other, all animals, I shouldn't say just primates, bears and otters and so forth. <clears throat> the idea that, you know, through this life, the animals needs change. And the, the facilities, whether they're back house, front house, or any other, have to be changeable to meet the changing needs of a long life. And now, you know, we've got 60 year old gorilla, 58 year old gorilla at Zoo Atlanta. Um, you know, how have they changed their, the setting, you know, the, to meet the animals changing needs. And so I think all of this has to build into this idea of flexibility and movability and let's get rid of everything that's hard and echoing and unfriendly and you know, build a world that's resilient and moves and is changeable and, and modifiable and transparent and, and you know, create the kind of environment that's an awful lot more like the the forest or the plains or the rivers where these animals evolved. Yes, absolutely. And thanks for, yeah, absolutely highlighting our forthcoming book. And I'm really delighted that you are, you know, writing a chapter on designing for elderly animals. The book is all about caring for elderly animals. And so, yeah, absolutely really important. And as you mentioned, all these different aspects to consider and, you know, how do we, and this is where your innovation also comes from. How are we not just perpetuating same things or are we really, you know, changing things? And, you know, you started this podcast with a story, the story of the elephants. And on your website, we'll definitely put a link to it. There are a lot of beautiful sketches with beautiful poems. There's also the dream pig, another story that is written by you and illustrated by you. <laughs> and it would be, you know, I'm a lover of stories and uh, it would be wonderful at the end of this podcast in conclusion to have, you know, you can share any story of an animal connection that you had or anything else, um, a story to conclude the podcast with putting you on the spot here, right? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, I think the story I'll tell actually is, is a little more general than that, but I think it's another important part of my work and, and, and very inspiring part of my work. Um, you mentioned the drawings. If you go on my website and, and um, you'll find a link to publications and then part of it is technical papers. I've, uh, you mentioned I've got 70 or more papers. I've written of conference papers and published papers and various things. Um, I wanted to put in a plug that I've now passed to uh, 20,000 reads on ResearchGate, which I thought was quite impressive for a guy who's not a scientist. Um, 
but the story I'll tell is uh, that I I had the opportunity to go to the Cameroons, to the rainforest uh, in the Campo area of the Cameroons to study uh, primate habitats. And we were looking for chimpanzees and we heard some hooting way in the distance, but this was within 10 kilometers of uh, logging roads. And so the poachers had been in there and, you know, there really weren't any, any very many chimps left and they were very wary. So we weren't going to see them, but we did, we were able to see quite a few different uh, types of manga bees and, and other kinds of primates and, and also some mandrels. But while some of my colleagues were off trekking, looking for, looking for primates, I chose to sit and put my back against a tree and do some drawing because I, I love sketching. And, and you'll, as you said, if you go to my website, you'll look at one link, which is <clears throat> um, all about poems and sketches. And so I'm sitting there with my back against this tree, drawing this jungle landscape around me. And I kind of, I'm getting into it. And then some time passes and I kind of come to and I look down and, and here's this quite detailed drawing, quite a nice drawing that's appeared on the page in front of me. And I don't remember drawing it. It, it became almost like a meditation. And what happens is you get into this zone very much like a meditation. And I believe that when you're in that zone, you're open to the environment around you, the sounds, the smells, the essence, the spirit, I'll call it the spirit of the place. Um, you're not blocking them, you're open and they just pour into you and you get this amazing feeling of, of that place. Uh, at that time, you'd never get that taking a picture and wandering around, you know, photographing things. It's the meditation of doing the drawing that, that brings it out. And then also there'll be a few lines of verse will come into my mind at that time. Or maybe, you know, walking back to camp and then maybe on the drive to the next place. And in two days, I'll have written a poem about that experience. And that's, these are also on, on the website. And <clears throat> so I call them sketch poems because they're like the sketch, you know, I would never dream of taking that drawing home and redoing it. You know, that's not the point. <laughs> the point was to capture that moment. What was happening, you know, in your vision and in what was happening in your internal workings that this poem emerged. And academic poets say, oh, it's it's not really poetry. It's it's a narrative. Uh, but, you know, you could work on it. And, and I said, no, no, I don't want to work on it. It was a moment in time. That's what it is. And I've always wanted to share those with other travelers in the wild. Let me, let me put it that way. Not, I'm not, this, these aren't academic exercises. These are, you know, capturing moments in wonderful places. And so if any of our listeners are interested in that sort of thing, and or maybe have similar experiences, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I welcome them to, to go there as well. But um, these are other skills listening skills, drawing skills, uh, social skills, all of these really come together um, 
you know, to create the opportunities that, that, that I certainly have benefited from it, but you know, that we all need. And I really recommend this kind of mixed path, you know, the third path um, uh, in whatever your career is, you know, to, to be open to the future, to, to look at things differently, to, and, and more than anything else, to make connections. Everybody wants to put you in a box. Oh, you're an architect. Oh, you're a scientist. Oh, you know, you're whatever. Don't do that. Don't let them do that. You know, build bridges, build connections. Wonderful, wonderful. I really love that. And yeah, I love, you know, I'm not very good at drawing, but it doesn't matter, right? You just have to kind of do it, it and matter. enjoy it. And uh, I love writing. So it totally resonates with me. And I love this, you know, again, what is the message here? And um, I think you're having held up a lot of different signs of, you know, different sorts of messages that, you know, whether it's building bridges, really connecting all kinds of skills and bringing them together. So I really, really appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, we have a, a, a really nice long podcast. So uh, thank you so much, John, for coming on to the podcast. I really look forward to, you know, you're coming on to do a back of house webinar together with me later on in June this month. And um, I already have lots of other ideas of uh, different sorts of collaborations and connections with you. So thanks so much for your time and all your insights over 60 years of work and all your really also, you know, inspirational messages of connecting with yourself, connecting to others, to animals and to this beautiful planet that we share. Thank you, John. My pleasure. Thank you. So this was the end of another wonderful podcast. And as you know, 